Genesis chapter 4. So we're meant, when we read Genesis chapter 4, we're, we're meant to actually have Genesis chapter 3 fresh in our mind when we read through these events that are chronicled in Genesis chapter 4. Those things that happened in Genesis chapter 3, the sin of Adam, the death of mankind, and even the curse of God. Gone are those days when Adam and Eve used to walk in the cool of the day with Yahweh Adonai. Gone are the days when creation enjoyed the care and nurture of Adam outside of sin. Gone are the days when the man and the woman, woman lived in true communion with each other. Man has ruined it. But I want to redirect your attention from the created back to the creator. Because it's always important as we study through this, as we start digging into this, we, it's always important to remember the truth of Genesis 1.1 in light of the text from today. And everything that you're going to, you're going to deal with in your life today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything that we know to be real, and even those things that we don't yet know to be real. He created it all with an end date, which is what that opening phrase, in the beginning, is there for. And it was God who created it all. And God created man, us, in his image. In his likeness, he did create them, male and female, he created them, Genesis 1.27. And it was all very good, Genesis 1.31. But then we're told of Adam's treason that followed the treason of Lucifer and the eternal death that Adam brought into humanity because of his sin. And then in chapter 3, we're told of the cursing of all creation because of the sin of man. And all of this happened in the eternal, preordained plan of God, which is perfectly holy. Saints, we must tread cautiously as we walk these hollowed paths of the reality of God, because we are much too quick to judge God, to assume and even presume concerning God. Oh, God would never do that, we hear. Or, Cancer can't be the will of God for you, we're told. And God would never predetermine who he would save from their self-inflicted eternal damnation. All must have equal access to him. Or God is not good. He's not fair. But listen to this man, Elihu. A man who stood among other men and spoke rightly about God. A man who is rebuking a servant of God, Job. Job, a man that God himself said was blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. The very same man who had lost all his great wealth in one day and had in that same day lost all of his children. A man who soon after that was afflicted from head to toe with oozing, painful, open sores. And we have no idea how long he was dealing with that before his friends, friends showed up on the scene to comfort him. But in Job chapter 35, verses 1 through 8, Elihu answered them. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Do you think this to be just? Do you say, it is my right before God, that you ask, what advantage have I? How better am I off than if I had sinned? Isn't this the same kind, same sort, same type of question as being posed today of God? You see, Job had all along proclaimed his innocent of unrepentant sin. And he was right in this, but he went too far in his humanity and said that the treatment that he had received from God was unfair. 
Verses 1 through 3 of Job 35 are the summation of the statements made by Job concerning that. And it was a right and fair and accurate summation by Elihu. But listen to this young man, Elihu, concerning that claim of God being unfair. Verses 4 through 8 of Job 35. I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds, which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you're righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself and your righteousness a son of man. What he was saying is that our sin, just like our righteousness, has no effect on God. God does not benefit from mankind in any way, any shape, or any form. And God is not hurt, injured, or hindered by man in any way, shape, or form. And this must always be in our minds as we, appre- as we approach this holy God. He is not benefited by us. We are not doing him any favors by showing up here. And he's not injured or hurt by any of our actions, by our sin, by our refusal to acknowledge that he is God. Through it all, he remains holy, holy, holy. Completely outside of all of his creation, above all of his creation. He is the creator. And everything that is, is only because of him. And is so for his glory. And as we read through chapter 4, this is the greatest answer to those dirt clods of humanity that claim that it's unfair that God does not reveal himself to sinners. Because if he did, if he revealed himself to sinners, if they were given a chance to know him, they would really choose him. They really would. After all, well, people are just generally good. We always must keep the truth of God and the truth of ourselves always at the forefront of our minds as we read through the Bible. Again, we must cautiously walk these hallowed paths of God. We must make sure that we are remembering the reality of Genesis 1-1 in light of the events that are taking place in our account from today. Throughout the telling of the creation of all that is, God gave indications of the end of the age. Even before, in Genesis 1, he spoke of the greatest rescue operation that had ever been conceived and successfully undertaken in the internal plan of salvation, which was already completed before God said, let there be light. Before man was created, light was. Before man was created, the light had already been slain. And those of the elect had their names written in the Lamb's book of life before man was created. And all of this is told to us in Genesis 1 through 3. And at that time, man walked without mediation with his creator. But we we must ask, why a good and just holy God would allow sin to enter into his creation and taint humanity? You know, he could have stopped this from happening. He really could have prevented sin, and he didn't. Why not? Because he's light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We understand that darkness, that black isn't real. It's only an absence of light. We can accept, and we know that this is truth, and we understand that this is truth. And this is truth only so that God will receive glory. Because the goodness of God, and we have to use an anthropomorphic term, which means a human term to, under, to actually say that. The goodness of God, 
could only be seen, would best be understood in the redemption of the souls of the humans that he would regenerate by his spirit through the application of the propitiation by God, his son, in the just payment for the sins of humanity, in the eternal punishment of the Father pouring out his, will, on his, his wrath on our willing Savior, the hero of the world, the Son. This is the truth of God. And this is the thing that we need to keep preeminent in our mind as we read through this account. And in verse 2, we're told of Cain and Abel walking in the God-ordained plan for humans to work and care for creation, as we're told that he gave that to Adam, even after the fall. We're not supposed to think that one was walking rightly in cultivating the ground, and the other was being a sinner by, keep, by keeping sheep. They were both walking in the command of God. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. In the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and the, and the fat of the portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering. This is what they did. They both brought an offering back to the one who made it possible for them to, to actually offer anything to him. And then we come to verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. In verses 4 and 5, we're told for the first time of man bringing an offering to God. And both men brought an offering to God. And for the first time, we're told of the reality that there is a distinction between men made by God. He, Yahweh, had regard for one man and not for the other. It wasn't just the offering that was being offered that was different. It wasn't that one brought an offering and the other just bought a first, that actually brought the first fruits and the fat of it to God. This isn't what caused God to have regard for one man over the other. In the epistle, the first epistle of John, chapter 3, verse 12, we read, We shouldn't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. You see, the reality of the curse of God as pronounced on the serpent in Genesis 3.15, is now being presented to us in human form. Cain and Abel. One of these things isn't like the other. They were both men. They both had the same mom and dad. And they both knew God, which is evident from the fact that they were both walking in the command of God. And they both brought an offering to God. But one of those offerings was brought from a heart that was filled with love and gratitude to the God that gave to him life and life more abundantly. And the other was brought because he was forced to. His offering, like this man, God had no regard for. If you've ever considered what Paul was getting at in 2 Corinthians 9 when he was talking about sowing sparingly and reaping sparingly, and then he followed that up with this. He said, each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is a great explanation of that. One was a cheerful giver. The other was not. And then we're told in verse 5, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. And very angry is the right translation. But you're thinking, well, David, if what you're saying is true, and Cain was not of God, not of the family of Eve, but he was of the family of Satan, then of course he was angry. He hadn't been chosen by God. And doesn't this prove those accusations made against a God who would choose specifically some people and not others? Of course Cain is angry. God's being unfair to him. Well, let me point out a couple things to you. First of all, we never hear God speaking to Abel. But God is speaking to Cain. 
And Cain did bring an offering to God. And he must have expected that whatever he brought was going to be good enough for God. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gotten angry. And third, God was under no obligation to make either Cain or Abel part of the family of Eve. He was gracious to both of them. Gracious to both of them to allow them to be in his presence. And he was gracious to Cain in blessing him with the ability to work, the ground in which to work, and the fruit of that work. Which brings us to verse 6. Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? And again, we're supposed to read chapter 4 with chapter 3 in mind. Because the quest, this question harkens back to the very question that God asked Adam back in the garden those years before, before Cain was ever even a thought. Yahweh asked Cain a question, just like he asked Adam a question when he said, where are you? God wasn't looking for information. He already knew the answers to both of those questions. And just as with his father Adam, Cain doesn't answer honestly. In fact, we're not even given the answer that he made, if any. We're just given verse 7, a statement by God to Cain, where he said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, verse 7 is one of the hardest verses in the Bible to translate into English. Once again, the issue is that our English language is a mixture of many languages, and Hebrew is a pure language. And a lot of people get this verse mixed up, and they're like, what is he trying to say? Is he actually trying to say that unsafe people can actually make the right choice and choose God? Is that what he's trying to say here? Well, Calvin in his commentary on this verse directs its meaning back to the thing that our section of Scripture is actually talking about here. And that's offerings, which is the very thing that Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians regarding offerings. The very thing that God says over and over again to the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament. Bring a right offering, and it will be accepted. Bring a wrong offering, and it will not. And the right offering has nothing to do with animals, meat, versus vegetables and groceries. In the book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, we're told of this God saying this. He said, I hate and despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And this theme is once again spoken of in the, by the prophet Ma uh, Micah in chapter 6, verses 6 or 8, where we read, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn from my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So what is it that God is saying to Cain in verse 7 then? What does he mean by verse 7 from our text? Well, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 is helpful. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. As is Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. As is Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, For you will do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
A broken and contrite heart, O God, will you not despise. But the best explanation is given none other than by God himself in John chapter 4, verse 24, where Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And just to make sure that we don't go off track and start thinking and making a list of things that we can do to earn favor with God through proper and right sacrifice, I want to present to you Hebrews chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. Turn with me again to the book of Hebrews. Have you guys noticed that as we go through the book of Genesis, so often we're going to the book of Hebrews? Um, The book of Hebrews so well explains the book of Genesis. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 through 10. The author there begins with this. Verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you don't desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you will have, you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. The author of Hebrews is using direct quotes from Jesus here. And then after quoting him, he then explains what those statements were, what he meant by them. And to ensure that we don't get confused and think that an unregenerate person can find favor with God through works, that our sinner actually can choose to serve and love God, he, the author of Hebrews, tells us in verses 8 through 10 of the meaning of the quotation by Jesus, who is the only hope of reconciliation with God. He said in verses verses 8 through 10, When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What God is telling, and what he is doing in verse 7, is telling Cain the truth. And you may find this hard to comprehend or even to stomach, but telling the truth is the most loving thing that any human or even what God can do to man, even if that truth is a bitter pill to swallow, just like this truth was. Because what God is telling Cain is that he must master that thing which is his master. He must master sin, even though he is a slave to sin. He is telling Cain that to be accepted, he must be in the family of the woman, Eve, and not of the family of the serpent. He must be more than just perfect to find favor with God. He must be holy. And he can do none of this on his own. And this is a hard pill to swallow. But it's still truth. R.C. Sproul used to say, he used to explain this away, or explain this in this way, that there was this master who had a slave, and the master was going away on a trip, and he tells that slave, your job is to stand watch and open this gate when I return. This is your responsibility. This is your one responsibility. And if you don't do this, you will suffer the consequences. And he tells the slave, there's a pit over there. Don't go near it. Stand watch here. And then the master goes away. And as the slave watches the master leave, he makes a right turn and jumps into that pit. And when the master returns, it's still the duty of that slave to do that thing which is now completely impossible for him to do. Open the gate. He's disobeyed his master. He could no longer do that which he was purposed, what he was supposed to do, and he will suffer the consequences for it. And in that scenario, it would be completely delusional, wrong, and even sinful to look down, walk over to that pit, look down at that slave, and tell him, you can open that gate if you choose to. Oh, there's a possibility that you might be able to open that gate. 
It would be wrong to tell that slave who's in that pit, there is no pit. It's, that, pigment, that pit isn't real. It's just a figment of your imagination. God is telling Cain the reality. You must master that which is your master to be accepted. And then in verse 8, we hear the response by Cain to God. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And now we're witnessed to the second murder recorded in the Bible. Well, that the first one occurred in chapter 3 when Adam chose to willfully commit suicide, spiritual treason by making the free will choice to decide that he knew better than the Creator. And then verse 8 is the fleshing out of the reality of that curse by God on the serpent. That his seed, the serpent's seed, would have enmity with the seed of Eve. But that his seed would bruise his heel, but that that seed would crush the head of the serpent. And then Yahweh said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Again, chapter 3, did you notice that, this, that God asked this son of Adam, the son of the serpent, the same type of question that he asked Adam back in chapter 3? And there, after Adam had sinned, God asked him a set of questions, Adam. The first is, where are you? And the second question is much like the first, what have you done? Have you eaten of the fruit that I commanded you not to eat? And what was it the reason? What was the reason that Adam um, didn't tell the truth to the second question like we think that he did for the first? When he was asked where he was, Adam, Adam answered, I heard you walking and was afraid of you because he knew. And then he tells him that I knew that I was naked. But in reality, the truth is, the thing that he knew was that he had committed sin. That he was, in fact, dead and separated from God. That he was no longer holy or perfect. He lied about why he was hiding. And then he lied about why he disobeyed. And he lied by blaming others. First, he blamed God. It was the woman that you gave me. If you wouldn't have given me such a lame gift, a horrible monster of iniquity, then I would never have sinned. But God wasn't fooled, and Adam was still responsible. And we see in our verses today that the son of Adam follows exactly the footsteps of his dear old dad. First in sin, then in murder, and then in an outright lie, and then in deflection. Just like Adam, he murders, then he lies about it, and then he tries to deflect and get the focus off of him and his sin to a secondary issue. Am I my brother's keeper? Where did that come from? That was never even an issue. But the response by Cain reveals not only his relationship with God, who had created him, but was also re reveals exactly what he thought of this God. Remember, it was Yahweh who asked him what he had done. It was Yahweh who had told him to master his sin. It was Yahweh who, who he and his brother, his dead brother now, had brought sacrifices to. But it was to God who Cain was talking to. And the point that I'm making is that Cain was so far removed from God, from the truth of who God is, from Yahweh, that he didn't even acknowledge. He didn't even revere he didn't even respect and fear him as anything other than a minor God who must not be able to see all, know all. If he had any decorum of respect or, or even fear of the Lord, he would have done like his parents did and hid from God when they heard him coming. But instead of fearing, he does what all sinners do. He boldly asks God, what right do you have to deal with me? And then in verse 10, we hear Yahweh Adonai ask Cain the same question that he asked of the woman back in chapter 3. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
For the first time, the only time in the Bible, we actually hear Abel say something. God speaks to Cain, and Cain speaks to God. We have recorded conversations from them, but we never hear Abel ever speaking to God until now. And then before we move from what Abel, from the Abel and that curse, we should understand what it was that Abel is actually saying. What is, be, what is being cried from the ground to the Lord? Because this is going to explain and understand where we and what we as servants of God, children of God, should expect from God. In Matthew 23, verses 34 and 35, in the midst of reviling men who are much like Cain, who are playing at religion of God, Jesus tells them that he, God, sent and that he, God, sent and will continue to send his servants, his slaves, to these men in order that they can kill and abuse them for specific reason, a specific reason. He said, therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of you, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that, there is the reason right there, so that, what follows is telling, this is why he's done this, so that on you may come all of the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. And again, in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, we hear of the end of days happening. And in the midst, there is this, in the midst of the seal judgments, we read this or hear this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. One more verse. Psalm 116, verse 15. Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his saints. What we're supposed to understand by all this is that the blood of Abel may have been spilt, and it was, by a son of Satan, but that blood was not wasted. And it wasn't an accident that this happened. And it wasn't because Cain hated Abel that he killed him. He did murder his brother out of hatred, though. But that hatred, although manifested against his brother, wasn't for his brother. He, he hated God. It was, as was evidenced by the willful murder of righteous Abel. And again, all this happened under the direction and willful intent of God. We saints, we need to understand that he sends his slaves, he sends his children into situations, into situations, not accidentally, where they will be abused for his name. And he does it in order that the truth of him is revealed to all of creation, in the temporal and in the spiritual realm. This is, that real, this is the reality of the count of Job. Do you understand that God never apologized to Job for what happened to him? The months of agonizing pain and torment due to an affliction of a disease that encompassed him from head to toe. He never tried to explain it away. He never said, I'm sorry. And he didn't explain away or try to explain away the killing of his ten children or the loss of all that he had. That all happened to prove that God is worthy to be praised no matter what. Abel's death, Job's suffering, 
all of the martyrs of God, all were in the will of God in order that the truth of God would be shouted throughout all eternity for all, for all creation. And that truth is, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That's what those saints waiting to be avenged cry out. Old sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They had proved the truth of God, that he is worthy of all. And that what they're asking now, what they're desiring now, is for the rest of the truth of God to be shouted for all eternity. He alone has the right and the ability in his holiness to judge and execute justice on sinners. Saints, this is the reality of our God, that he is worthy to be praised, worthy to be obeyed, to live for, and even die for. So often we want to get that backwards. We're, man, I'm, I would so die for the Lord. If, if I were sent to Afghanistan, I would so die for the Lord. Great. Live for him then. The living is harder than the dying. He has given you life both times, and the second time cost him his life. And he never wastes any, not one, of his children. He is not careless with them. He desires them to know the reality of who he is. So he places them in harm's way. And as they cling to him, as they rely on him, pray to him, he is glorified in the heavens. And they, they fall more in love with him as he comforts them, reveals himself to them. And now we can look at the rest that this Yahweh Adonai has to say to the son of the serpent. Verses 11 and 12. And now... You are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. God does the same thing with Cain that he did with Adam. Only this time, Cain is removed from the God-ordained occupation that had been given to man. He was no longer going to be one with the ground. He was told, you can try and work it. You can try and go back to being a farmer, but your attempts are going to be futile. And the curse of Cain is very similar to the curse of his father. Not Adam, but the serpent. The just judgment to Adam was that the ground was cursed and would produce thorns and thistles. But the serpent, both physical and spiritual, they were cursed, not the ground, just as Cain is. You are cursed, Cain, because the ground has received the blood of your brother. And the second half of the curse is the one that brought Cain to complain that his punishment wasn't fair. When he said, I can't do this. And the thing that we're supposed to see here in this curse, what is relevant here is the important the importance, sorry, of the covenant community that Cain is now being cast out of. That second part of that curse on Cain by God is this, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And it was this second part that caused Cain to cry foul to God. God had made the first covenant with man, and after the sin of Adam, he did that. In the promise of the Redeemer who would come from Eve, who would be of the seed of the woman and not of the seed of the serpent. And it was within this community that Adam and Eve had lived, had their children, even after the sin of Adam, until Cain and the murder of Abel. It's then that the murderer, the one that we are told of, is, is the seed of the serpent, according to 1 John 3.12. It was then, it was he who was cast out of this covenant community. And the importance of this is very evident by the reaction of Cain. Let's look at verses 13 and 14 here. Cain said to Yahweh, My punishment is greater than I can bear. 
Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and away from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain recognized the safety that was within this covenant community and the danger that, lay, that lied outside of it. And we must remember that this first covenant, the covenant that's made with Adam, isn't the same as the last covenant. But it most certainly spoke to this covenant. It pointed to the last covenant. It was a shadow of the reality of the last covenant. And the theme of a covenant community is one that begins in the garden after the sin of Adam. And it follows all throughout the Bible until we get to the last covenant the one that we're part of. But let me ask you this. How upset would you be to be cast out of this covenant community? We, we can look at Cain and go, man, he was a bad man. But how much of a difference would it actually make in your daily life if you were told that you can no longer come and worship here? Would you just shrug your shoulder? I'm going to go golfing instead. Or maybe I'll just go to a gathering of another set of people on a Sunday. After all, I mean, this can't be the only place where the Spirit of God resides. This isn't what you're saying, David. It's not what you're implying, is it? Not at all. What I'm saying, though, is in his sovereignty, God has created covenants between people that make families. The marriage covenant is one of those. In a marriage covenant, you don't get to be upset with your, your spouse and go, I don't want to hang out with you anymore. I'm going to go find somebody else. The same thing with a church covenant. The reality is that the church is supposed to be special in the life of a believer. And that specialness is demonstrated to us by Christ before he died and rose again and birthed the church. In the Gospel of Matthew, in the 18th chapter, he said this concerning the church. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, and between him and you alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And again, remember, this was before he died. And if you refuse to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, verses 15 through 18. And there are those, though, that want to make that to mean something like this is not talking about the local covenant community. This is talking about the eternal, invisible church and not a local body of believers. But outside of a local context, a very familiar setting of people who know you and are intimate with you, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, honestly, how much would it affect you to have people who you don't normally associate with decide, I'm not going to associate with you? Would it make any difference at all? The importance of the local body of believers called the church is shown throughout the Bible and specifically spoken of in the New Testament. If not, who are we, the elders, are supposed to be accountable for, as told to us in Hebrews 13, 17? And were the saints at Ephesus, were they responsible for that man that was having sex with his father's wife in Corinth? Were they told to cast him out? And if church hopping wasn't a big deal, then what was the point of Paul telling the church in Corinth to cast him out in the first place? There we read 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And again, Paul is writing to a specific church at that point in 1 Corinthians. Not the church at large, not even the churches in an area. It's not like he was writing to the churches in Altus. He was writing to a church. And he says, and you're arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among of you. Remung, removed from among you. And again, he's talking specifically to a specific group of people. 
And then he goes on in verse 3, For though absence of body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on, him, on one who does such a thing. So when you are assembled in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Here, Paul is, is trying to, to tell us the importance, to make known to us the importance that if we allow sin in our body, any sin, any unrepentant sin, it's going to affect our whole body. I said this earlier today. You wouldn't be okay being told you have cancer on your little toe. You wouldn't go home and go, ah, that's all right. Not like it's going to affect my heart or my brain. We are one body. Unrepentant sin in this body will infect the body. Verse 70 says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So here is the standard, and here is the reason that we who are sinners, because we are sinners, every one of us, we are still charged with casting out and dealing with unrepentant sin. And that reason is because of Christ, who is holy, who is pure, and who has purchased us with his blood, and now, and who, and now who we stand in. We are, to the best of our ability, to pursue holiness in the church. And Paul goes on, he says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but with the, leaven, the, le the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the, greed or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go outside of the world. What I am writing to you is not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat, as such as one, eat with, with such as one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside in the church whom you are to judge? And again, outside of the local context of the local church, what are we supposed to be doing? Are we supposed to be judging those out there in another church, another place? Verse 13, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And this is what Yahweh just does with Cain. But the question you may be asking, though, is why didn't God just strike Cain dead? I mean, wouldn't that have been a great way to warn people against murder? You murder somebody, bam, dead. Wouldn't it have been a great way to show the importance of the sanctity of, of human life to everybody? Sure it would. But humans are not the focus of creation. And they're not the focus and primary concern for God. He is. His glory is. And we read in verses 15 that Yahweh corrects this man who's having this little pity party over the mercy that is, being, that is being bestowed on him. And once again, we see that just like his father, who twisted the words of God and even impugned the character of God, Cain does the very same thing, which is what verse 15 points out. Yahweh said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, and Yahweh shall put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And that sevenfold vengeance spoken of by God is representative. Whenever you see that number seven in the Bible, we're meant to think complete, total. This is the biblical tool, and it's called the law of first mention, and it follows throughout the Bible. You want to desire and you want to see what a number or a thing represents, go back to the first time that it's mentioned, as evidenced by the first time that, we're used, that this number seven is used in Genesis, seven, or Genesis 2, 1 through 3, speaking of the seventh day. But the interesting thing about the whining of Cain is that while he was mourning the punishment of God, he was never repentant of the sin that he had done. Oh, he was sorry. 
He was sorry that he was punished. But he would, we're never told that he was sorry over the murder of his brother. And then we're given verses 16 through 24. And they're given to us to chronicle the downward spiral of the human race at the same time as it marks what we call the advancement of the human race. We read the making of musical instruments, the humanities, making of cities, working of iron, metal. And we read of the perversion of the word of God by man. Seven generations after Adam, Lamech takes two wives. Think about that. God gave Adam a wife, a helpmate, and he said, the two shall become one. And as we discussed last week, all sin is a perversion of something of God. And this Lamech, who was perfect, number seven, again, perfection, he's perfect in his sin. And after taking two wives, as Lamech, as we're told here, Lamech then gives us another human first. You may have noticed in your Bible that those next verses after this, after the speaking of Laman taking two wives, verses 23 and 24, they're written different in your Bible. They're kind of set apart. They're, they're not just like a full sentence. That's, be called, that's because this is commonly called a poem. This is the first poem in the Bible. It's called the poem of Lamech. And in it, the thing that he says, the thing that he does, is to take the mercy of God and the mark of Cain and the perfect protection over him and pervert it. This Lamech, he murdered a man. And then he pronounces on himself the perfect protection of God multiplied seven times. And then against this perfect sinful nature of man, the reality of the hopelessness of man is shown. And against that backdrop, out of nowhere, we get verses 25 and 26. Then Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son, and she called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he named his, called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. These verses are given to us to remind us, to bring us back to the reality of the promise of the Redeemer given in the cursing of the serpent. I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and hers. He is going to crush your head. You will bruise his heel. And the account of Cain and his offspring is the accounting of the offspring of the serpent, the offspring that seems to be winning, seems to be advancing. But this is only what seems to be happening. For Seth is born. And from Seth, Enosh is born. And in this time, people began to gather in the public worship of God. Evil is spreading. Humanity is advancing. And at the same time, there's this little gathering of saints who are calling on the name of Yahweh. Adam sinned. He committed eternal spiritual suicide. But then he heard the word of God in Genesis 3. The promise of a redeemer, and he hoped, and so he named the woman Eve. Cain's sin, his progeny became proficient in sin. But in hope, Eve once again bore a son, and she named him Seth, which means appointed. She believed the word of God, and she had hope in the God that that promised a redeemer who was worthy to be praised and who gathered his people under the banner of love and they worshiped him. Saints, the reality is is that every one of us in this room were just like Cain. We were all of the seed of the serpent. We were of our father. Satan. And sin infected us to our very core. But we've been redeemed. We've been adopted, 
purchased from our old master by the master who is now our father in heaven. And we are no longer just sinners. Now we are saints who sin. And every moment that we battle our sinful nature, every time that we mortify this flesh, every time that we act in and that we live by faith, we are bringing glory to the God that purchased us, that redeemed us, that wrote our names in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And every time that we come together, come together and gather to worship, we are proclaiming his victory over sin. And we are celebrating. This is what this is. This is we are celebrating. We're gathering together, celebrating our adoption into his family. We have no other relationship with each other. But we are the brothers and sisters in Christ because he has adopted us. And at the same time, we come together and we are expressing our longing for the coming reality of our home which is found not in heaven, but in Jesus, who is in heaven. Saints, we live in a sin-filled world, but do not despair about the sin in the world or even the sin that still remains within you. Remember, we don't do anything to God. If you are a saint, then you've been redeemed and God has made you holy because he is holy. And that's why we must look to Jesus. Remember the testimonies that were given in the Bible, beginning with Abel. And remember the testimonies of all those humans that have lived before us and gone before us. And as we're told in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, remember this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great a cloud of witnesses, and that's what those saints that have died are, they're witnesses to the fact that God is worthy to be praised no matter what. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. I can't be the only one that feels this way. That my sin is clinging so closely to me. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Do you realize what the joy is that was set before Christ? Do you realize what that joy was, is? It's you. You are the joy that was set before him. So much so that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Saints, do not despair because Cain killed Abel. Because evil just seems to be rampant in our world. This is the will of God. He is sovereign over all of this. Look to Jesus. He has redeemed you. He has purchased you. He has adopted you into his family. And he's using all these things, all the hardships that happen in your life, all the pain, all the suffering, all these things, so that for all eternity, the preeminence of his name will be shouted. And so that you, as you're comforted, as you cling to him with feeble hands and he comforts you that the reality of your salvation, the reality of the love of your Lord becomes 
yours. And you praise his name. Do not despair, but rejoice. A Redeemer has been promised. A Redeemer has come. And He will and has conquered. Let's pray.